good morning. Thanks. Thanks, Carolina. Good morning. I just uh, want to add my greetings to those uh, from everyone else already this morning. And so good to see you all here as we gather together to worship uh, the Lord together. And before we get into our passage this morning, I wanted to just say one thing about me as your pastor. I am still new as your pastor. I've really only been here for about a month. And one of the things that I'm trying to do as a new pastor is to get to know you all as a congregation. And I've had the opportunity to do that with several of you already, but there's a lot of you that I still don't know. Um, And so I would like to get to know you better. And so I just want to invite you all, if you're looking to get coffee or lunch or breakfast or anything like that, to please reach out and contact me. I would be happy to do that. I have a lot of flexibility in my schedule right now during the week, and um, my main priority is to get to know you all. So please don't hesitate to do that. I would love to hear from you. I'm trying to reach out to people as well, uh, but you don't need to wait to hear from me. Put that out there as an open invitation. Would love to spend some time with you, getting to know your story, uh, who you are, uh, what God is doing in your life, uh, to know how to be praying for you as a congregation. So uh, today we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. So hear with me the word of the Lord. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you. For your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks this morning once again for the gift of your word that you have inspired by your Holy Spirit and given to us so that we might know you and that we might grow in our relationship with you. 
And we pray once again this morning that you would open our hearts and minds to receive what you have for us. We ask the question, Lord, what do you want to say to us today? What do you want to say to us as a church today? How is it that you want to form us more and more into the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ? We pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in all that we say and do. And we ask this in his name. Amen. So we started our, our new series last week on Paul's letter to the Philippians. And, and uh, just a quick review as before we dig deeper into today's passage, uh, just in case you weren't here last week, but a lot of the sermons will build on each other as we go through Philippians. So there's good things for us to keep in mind, good little bits of background. We won't do quite as much as we did last week, but it's good to know uh, a few things as we are listening to Philippians and considering Paul's words here. Paul is writing from prison, and we heard that in our passage today. He says this uh, several times, that he is in chains. So he's writing from prison to this body of believers, uh, this church that he had founded several years earlier. And there were many miraculous events that were surrounding the start of the church there, the founding of the church. You can read about those again in Acts chapter 16. And these are people that Paul cares deeply about, and you pick that up immediately in his words, in his writing to them. There's a real warmth and affection that he feels for them. It flows between them. They feel it towards him as well. These are people who bring Paul joy, which that is a real gift to have people in your life who bring you joy. Think right now about people in your life who bring you joy, people that just when you are with them, you are happy, uh, they are, bring you some sense of, of joy and satisfaction, there's a fulfillment in that relationship. This is the kind of relationship Paul has with the people in Philippi, with the church there. They bring him joy. And we all need people in our life who bring us joy. Uh, they are a real gift from the Lord, and, and we should give thanks to the Lord for people like that. So this is the kind of relationship that Paul has, and I hope we, we hear that as we're reading through Philippians, that there is a real joy that Paul takes in this community there. It comes out as he writes, the, the tone of the whole letter is joy. It's a happy letter in many ways, which is remarkable considering Paul's circumstances, that he could be feeling so much joy in spite of what is going on with him. It's a letter that would have been well-received by the community there. They would have been happy to hear from Paul, to know what was going on with him, even as he's in prison, to hear a word from him. And the last point of review is that the overarching theme that we are looking at from Philippians is the idea that for Paul, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. That's the idea we want to have in the back of our minds as we go through this whole series. It's a quote from today's passage, as you just heard a few minutes ago. And it's an idea that is central to all of Paul's writings and in, in his theology. We see it throughout the New Testament. It's a remark that Paul makes about himself, that to live is Christ but it's one that he desires to be true for all of Christ's followers, that this is something to, to attain to. It's something to shoot for. It's a sign of maturity in our faith to be able to say, for me, to live is Christ. And so Paul just keeps putting that out there in different ways throughout his writings of the New Testament. And really, this is Paul's desire for all people, because Paul's desire for all people is that they would become followers of Jesus Christ 
That's what his life is dedicated to and committed to. He wants to see people come to know Christ and eventually get to the point where they would say, to live is Christ. So Paul is writing this letter for several reasons. And one reason is is to thank them for their support, especially since he has been in prison. They have recently sent him a generous gift, and so Paul writes to express his gratitude. This is a thank you note in some form. Despite my mom's best efforts growing up, I was never good at writing thank you notes, uh, but that is what Paul is doing here. He is writing a thank you note to this congregation. Thank you for the recent generous gift that you have sent to me. But he's also writing to encourage them in their faith. And really, this is the bigger concern for Paul. Everything he writes in this letter is for the purpose of building them up in their faith, this community. Even though it's been a while since Paul has seen them or since he has stayed with them, since he's lived with them, he's still the one who first brought the gospel to them. He's the one who told them the good news about Jesus Christ and saw them come to faith. He's the one who baptized many of them and who founded the church there. And so Paul still very much approaches them in a pastoral way. What Paul wants is to see them grow and develop as disciples of Jesus Christ. He wants to see them grow in their knowledge and love of the Lord. So even here in this passage where Paul is writing about his own circumstances, about what's going on with him in prison, what Paul is actually doing is setting an example for them in both behavior and attitude, both how they might act and and what they might think. And one of the things I love about what is happening here is that Paul is, as Paul is pastoring these people through this letter, this congregation in Philippi, this people that he has so much affection for. What I love about it is that as we read this letter today, even 2,000 years later, with so much distance between us and them, the Apostle Paul is pastoring us too through this letter. In these words, he sets out an example for us as Christ's followers today, both in behavior and attitude. He gives us something to shoot for here. He he gives us a way of responding to the adversity that we face in this life, which is different from what the world tells us. That's what we hear in this passage. Again, Paul is writing from prison, which he talks about here in these verses, and he says several times that he is in chains. And we don't know the specific charges that he's been arrested for, It's either because he was promoting an unauthorized religion or because uh, the particular religion that he is promoting, Christianity, in that religion there is only one Lord, Jesus Christ, not the Roman emperor. Whatever it was, what we know is that Paul is in prison for spreading the gospel. And the gospel, by its nature, often challenges the established order of things. And it challenges those who are in power. As we said a a few weeks ago uh, in a sermon uh, just after the new year, wherever the kingdom of God runs up against the kingdoms of the world, there is going to be conflict. Wherever the kingdom of God runs up against the kingdoms of the world, there is going to be conflict. And that's exactly what we see happening here. Paul is spreading the gospel. He's seeing it advance throughout the Roman Empire. And this is making people unhappy. And for that reason, he's been arrested and he has been thrown into prison. In Paul, along with the other apostles and the early Christians, the kingdom of God 
is running up against the mighty Roman Empire, and conflict is resulting. And this will lead to the many persecutions that are faced by the early church under different emperors. And the truth is that we still see this playing out in the world today, as there are many places where Christians are persecuted for their faith. This is not something that is just unique to the Roman Empire, not something that is just a fact of history that the church has been persecuted. We know that it is still going on. And many of you know that all too well for yourselves. Paul's efforts to spread the gospel are not welcome in the Roman Empire. And so here is Paul imprisoned. He's in chains. He's an apostle who has spent much of his life traveling all over preaching the gospel establishing churches. This has been his mission in life. God has sent him to witness to the Gentiles. But now he's stuck in jail, in prison. He's unable to travel, and he's facing a trial that might well end in a death sentence for him. These are the circumstances that Paul finds himself in, the circumstances he's writing about to this church. And things are not looking good for Paul. How might we expect Paul to respond to the circumstances he finds himself in? How might we expect Paul to react to this situation? How would we be feeling? How would you be feeling if you were in Paul's shoes? If you were in prison for sharing the gospel with people? If you were facing a trial like this that might well end in a death sentence for you? We might forgive Paul if he was angry or fearful if he was wallowing in self-pity, if the tone of this letter to the Philippians had a much different feel to it, if we could understand that, we could understand that, we could perhaps relate it to it ourselves. But this isn't what we get from Paul. This isn't what we hear from him. Paul's response is remarkable because in the midst of all that is going on with him, we still get joy. We still get joy from Paul. Paul is rejoicing. He is rejoicing. It reminds me of of the story in Acts 16. Paul has been in prison before. And in Acts 16, we get the story about how he founded the church in Philippi. And Paul was imprisoned in Philippi the first time he ever went there when he founded the church. You all may know this story. He and Silas were thrown into prison and they're sitting there in chains. And what were they doing? Praising God. They were praying And they were singing hymns of praise to the Lord. And there's this huge earthquake, right? And and the doors of the prison open and the chains fall off and they don't leave. They don't leave. And it leads to the conversion of the jailer there. It's this great, amazing story that we have. So this isn't the first time we've seen Paul in a similar situation and yet still rejoicing. God bless Paul. God bless Paul. How can this be? What is going on here? Is this, is this just Paul putting a happy face on things? Is this, is this Paul just not wanting to bring everyone down? He doesn't want to be the bummer at the party. Maybe he doesn't want to discourage other people by sharing how he's really feeling. Is that what's going on here? He doesn't want to see them become discouraged too. Or maybe Paul is in denial about the reality of his situation. Maybe that's what's happening. He can't face the facts. He's not willing to deal with what is in store for him. Maybe Paul just can't admit defeat. How is it possible for him to respond this way? How can he rejoice in spite of what is in front of him? And I think it's because Paul 
rejoices, or Paul rejoices in the midst of his circumstances because he recognizes God's work in it. Paul rejoices in the midst of his circumstances because he recognizes God in the midst of it. It's not that Paul can't face the reality of his situation. It's that Paul sees the bigger reality. Paul sees the bigger reality, the one defined by God himself. Paul recognizes that God is working throughout the history of the world to redeem his people and all of his creation and that each of our lives is a part of that work. Each of our lives is a part of what God is doing to redeem the world. It's not that Paul wants to be in prison, of course not, but Paul is able to look and see that the circumstances of his life are not just about him, but that there is something bigger going on, something more important. Paul sees that God is using his imprisonment for his own purposes. He writes this, I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And this is it for Paul. This this is what really matters, that the gospel is being advanced. The Apostle Paul has a single-minded commitment to the advancement of the gospel. And that's what we see come out here in this passage. Paul wants to see the gospel of Jesus Christ going forth into the world in the power of the Holy Spirit. He wants Christ to be preached, Christ crucified and risen, Christ ascended and reigning. This is the good news that Paul wants people to hear. And Paul knows firsthand that the gospel has the power to change people's lives because it changed his, completely turned his life around and sent it on a completely different trajectory from where it was going. He says in Romans, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to bring salvation to all who believe. Paul sees the gospel advancing around him in powerful ways, even as he's in prison, and for that he rejoices. In fact, Paul even goes a step further than to say that God is using his imprisonment. Paul recognizes that the gospel is being spread in ways that can only happen because he is in prison where he is. This is happening not in spite of the fact that he's in prison, but because of it. And this is a powerful statement from Paul about his trust in God's sovereignty and his submission to God's will. Paul's attitude is that this is God's work. And so whatever role I am to play in it, I am ready. Whatever role I am to play in it, I am ready. There are two specific things happening that Paul points at to say, look at what God is doing. And the first is happening in prison. Paul says, It became known to the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Not surprisingly, even though Paul is in prison, he has not stopped sharing the gospel with those that he comes into contact with. Everyone knows why he's there, and it is for Christ. The whole prison guard knows that. And so even in prison, Paul is continuing to fulfill the call that God has placed on his life, witnessing to the Gentiles. He isn't able to travel around the Roman Empire anymore the way that he was used to, so he's just going to do it from right where he is. Anyone who's guarding him, anyone who comes to visit him, anyone who's talking to him, why not share the gospel? It's just another opportunity for people to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Anyone else he gets the chance to speak with, let's share with them too. Why not? Why not? 
even his upcoming trial for him is another chance to tell more people about Jesus Christ. He says that this will be an opportunity for him to defend the gospel, to tell people what he really believes, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived, died, and rose again, and now is ascended and reigning on high. The more people who hear that message, the better. And the second way that Paul sees the gospel spreading because of his imprisonment is, is outside of jail. It's outside of prison with other believers taking up the mantle for him. He says, and because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. And what Paul is watching happen is the multiplication of his ministry. For so long, he has been the one who has been fearlessly proclaiming the gospel wherever he went, whether that meant he got to be put in prison or not, or he was thrown out of a city, whatever it might be, whatever the results might be, Paul was fearlessly proclaiming the gospel because it was the work that God gave him to do. Now, others were doing this as well, but Paul was always sort of the main guy. People looked up to him to set the pace. But now that he is in prison, he can't do it anymore the way that he used to. And so other Christians, men, men and women of faith, are stepping in to fill the gap left by Paul's absence. And they are starting to now boldly and fearlessly proclaim the gospel as well. They have begun preaching Christ with confidence and without fear. And for this reason, Paul rejoices because the gospel is being advanced. I imagine Paul was especially pleased by this development because any good leader wants to hand off their work to people who will take it and carry it on after them. And Paul's not worried about his own legacy. He doesn't care if people remember him or not. He just wants to know that the gospel is advancing, that it is continuing to go forth, that it's moving forward and changing people's lives, that the kingdom of God is being built here on earth. And regardless of the outcome of this situation, whether this trial will end in his uh, release or his death, Paul knows that he's not going to be around on this earth forever. And he wants the work to continue after him. So what he's watching happen would give him hope for the future of the church and the spread of the good news. More and more people with a commitment to advancing the gospel. This is something that Paul can, can rejoice in. And Paul admits that while many in this group have pure motives, they're doing it from a good heart, others do not. There seems to be a faction in this group. There's, there's already rivalries in the church. Sometimes we uphold the early church as sort of this ideal of what we're supposed to be like. And there's things we can learn from the early church. But if you read the New Testament, there were problems right away. And I think that can sort of be an encouragement for us too, to say, however, we have conflicts within our church. The early church was dealing with them as well, right, even right after Jesus rose from the dead. So Paul is talking about people in the church, and there's already rivalries, people who, who don't like Paul. And so he says that there is this faction that is trying to somehow stir up trouble for him in prison by sharing the gospel. We don't know exactly what that looks like, how that could be possible, but somehow that is what's going on. They are doing it out of selfish ambition, and there's some sort of rivalry there. It doesn't quite say what, but, but that's what's going on. But Paul's response is quite clear. He says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because the gospel is still being advanced. The gospel is still being proclaimed, and so whether that's happening from pure motives or not, this is still a good thing. And for that, he can rejoice. 
Because even when the gospel is preached for the wrong reasons, it can still be heard rightly and received in faith. And thank God for that too, friends. Thank God for that too, that the advance of the gospel does not rely on the pure hearts of sinful people who are carrying that message. We can advance the gospel and know that it can be heard rightly and received in faith regardless of where our hearts are as we share it. So from here, Paul moves to reflecting on what he thinks the outcome of his situation will be for him. There's sort of two options. He's either going to be released and he can come visit the Philippians again. And he lands on saying he thinks that is what's going to happen because he thinks that God wants him to be able to minister to them more and to visit them, that they can rejoice together. But he also knows that there's a possibility that he is going to die, that this imprisonment may end in his death. And so he's reflecting on what the Lord has in store for him. And he shares his confidence that the prayers of the Philippian church and God's Holy Spirit are working together to bring about the desired outcome and that God's going to be glorified and Paul will not be shamed, whatever happens. Either of those, either of those options, God is going to be glorified. And as he reflects on life and death and which one is waiting for him, Paul comes out with this statement that so wonderfully encapsulates his view of the Christian life. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, obviously, the first half of this verse is what we are using as our theme for this sermon series, to live is Christ. And I decided uh, just to use the first half of that statement for a couple of reasons. One is it's a little bit catchier to just say to live as Christ. Uh, it's a little bit easier to remember, sticks in our minds better. And also because for most of us, I imagine that we're thinking more about life day to day than we are about death. Now that may not be true for all of us, but I imagine for most of us, we're thinking about what it means to live in Christ. But really we want to hold these two things together, both parts of this saying as Paul does. And my hope is that any time you hear the one, that you will think of the other, that that will follow up in your head. When you hear, to live is Christ, that you will immediately tag, and to die is gain, to the end of that in your heads. And now that I've said it, hopefully it will stick with you, right? To live is Christ, to die is gain. One of the major things that this statement does is to show how the gospel redefines how we understand both life and death. The gospel redefines how we as Christians understand life and death. Once you put your faith in Christ, it changes the way that you think about both of these things, life and death. And the great thing is that for the Christian, these new understandings are win-win. They're win-win. To live is Christ. To die is gain. There are benefits in them for both of us. I mean, both of them have benefits for us. Both life and death are to our benefit. And we won't have time to fully explore all of this idea this morning, but that's okay because it's a lifelong pursuit for us, this pursuit of discipleship, and to understand what this means, to live as Christ and to die as gain. But we'll talk about it a little bit for the next few minutes. So let's start with life. How does the gospel change the way that we understand our lives? And Paul says it right here. If he stays living in the body, this means fruitful labor for the Lord. Life means fruitful labor for the Lord. As Galatians uh, chapter 6 verse 9 says it, uh, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. 
And in other places, he says, remember that your labor in the Lord is not in vain, but you will reap a harvest in due time. As we said last week, there are lots of ways that Paul talks about the idea of to live is Christ throughout his writings. We are to be found in Christ. Our lives are bound with Christ's. We have been crucified with Christ, and he now lives in us, and plenty more things that Paul has to say about it. But what it boils down to is that we are no longer to live for ourselves. Once we are in Christ, we now belong to God. As Paul says elsewhere, you are not your own, but you were bought at a price. And that price was Christ's broken body and shed blood on the cross. And so now Jesus has a claim on us. And because of this, our lives take on new meaning and new purpose. They have been reoriented and redirected to Christ and his cross and beyond it to new life in him. And so no longer are our lives about building our own kingdoms. My life is not about building the kingdom of Mike and trying to get everything that I can just gathering more and more things, wealth and possessions and status and whatever it is for myself. A lot of the messages we hear from the world is that that is what we are supposed to be living for, for ourselves, to build up our own kingdoms. But now our lives are about building up God's kingdom. By preaching the gospel, by, by serving others, there are countless ways that we can do this. But this is what life is now about once we are in Christ. As long as we live, there is fruitful labor for the Lord that we can be a part of. God has a purpose for our lives. The big picture is that it is to bear his image in this world and to be good stewards of his creation. This is what we see in the first couple chapters of Genesis, why God created human beings. But what that means for each of us will look differently based on our own individual gifts and circumstances and callings. But for each of us, there are opportunities to glorify God in what we do. And there can be a real gift for us in living this way. There's a certain self-forgetfulness that comes with it to find our life in Christ. There's a natural humility that is born from it that is good for us as human beings. To not be so worried about ourselves and our own kingdoms, but instead to be thinking about the kingdom of God. To live is Christ. Okay, so that's challenging, but maybe at least reasonable or understandable. But then we get to the second part of Paul's saying, which is to die is gain. And what does Paul mean by this? It almost sounds like nonsense. How can death possibly be better than life? How can death be possibly better than life? And here's where the gospel gets radical for some people. And I know that Preston last summer was preaching through uh, First and Second Thessalonians, or last year, and he talked about this, the Christian view of death. And so you may hear some of the same things repeated. I'm giving you credit that you remember Preston's sermon from last summer, but you may hear some of the same ideas repeated here. But as Christians, our view of death is redefined by the gospel as well. And for Paul, death means being in the presence of the Lord. Death means being in the presence of the Lord which is his true heart's desire. This is the end game for Paul, that one day he would end up in the presence of the Lord. And this is why he can say boldly and confidently, to die is gain, and that he desires to depart and be with the Lord, which is better for him by far. 
It's why he can also say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? So often the prevailing understanding in this world is that death is the final enemy, the one who always wins in the end. Death is going to get us at some point. There are two inevitabilities in life, taxes and death. You may have heard that saying before, right? We can't escape either one. Death is going to win out in the end. It's coming for each of us. And this is what the world says, that death gets the final say over life. And sadly, as much as we talk about eternal life in Christ and our hope in him, I think often as Christians, that is how we think about death too, in practicality, or at least at times we get there. That death is the victor, that death defeats life. But in Christ, this understanding gets completely turned on its head. Death doesn't defeat life, but life defeats death. This is what happened when Christ was raised from the dead. The resurrection flips all of this upside down. And now, for those who are in Christ, life has the final say. And that is Paul's message to us here. For him, death is not the end of his life, but it means departing his body to be fully in the presence of the Lord. Now, Paul is going to talk later in Philippians about how we will have resurrection bodies one day and when Jesus returns. But for now, until Jesus comes back, this is what Paul is saying, that he will leave this body, this world, to be fully in the presence of the Lord. And this is what we all desire as Christians. Really, I think it's what all people desire. It's just that a lot of people are looking for it in the wrong places. Communion with God. Communion with God. It's what we were created for in the first place. And it's what Christ came to restore for us because it was broken by sin. St. Augustine of Hippo uh, wrote in his book, The Confessions, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Whatever else may be waiting for us in heaven, the true reward is that we will get to be in the presence of the Lord forever. And in him, we will find our peace. Paul does not fear death because Christ is alive and reigning over the whole universe. And there's no need for us to fear death either because Christ is alive and he shall reign forever and ever. I went to a funeral last fall uh, for a dear friend um, and and woman of faith. Uh, She died at 101 years old. Um, And at her funeral, the pastor read uh, this passage that's attributed to a man named Matthew Henry. He was an 18th century Presbyterian pastor, uh, and he wrote this, and it said uh, that this was found, this note was found after his death and after his funeral. Uh, But this is what it says. Would you like to know where I am? I am at home in my father's house, in the mansion that Jesus prepared for me there. I am where I would be, no longer on the stormy sea, but in the safe and quiet harbor. My working time is done, and I am resting. Would you know how it is with me? I am made perfect in holiness. Grace is swallowed up in glory. Faith no longer hopes, but sees. Mortality has given way to life as it was meant to be. Would you know what I am doing? I see God 
I see him as he is, not as through a glass darkly, but face to face. And the sight is transforming. It makes me like him. I am in the sweet enjoyment of my blessed Redeemer. I am here singing alleluias incessantly to him who sits upon the throne. And I rest not day or night from praising him. Would you know what company I keep? Blessed company, better than the best on earth. Here are holy angels and the spirits of just men and women made perfect. I am set down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the saints. Would you know how long this is to continue? It is the dawn that never withers, the crown of glory that fades not away. After millions and millions of ages, it will be as fresh as it is now. And therefore, weep not for me. For the Christian, death means entering into the presence of the Lord for all of eternity. And friends, for this reason, we can rejoice. Now, that doesn't mean that we should embrace death or rush to it. That's not what Paul is saying here. That's not what he's getting at. There is something deeply ingrained in us as human beings that knows death isn't something that was meant to be. What we see in death is the consequences of our sin, the consequences of the sin of all humanity. The wages of sin is death. So we know that this is not something that we want, and we mourn the loss of loved ones because we will miss them in the ways that they enriched our lives here on earth. So we do mourn, but we don't mourn as those who have no hope because though the sorrow may last for the night, Joy comes with the morning. Death does not get the last say. For those who are in Christ, life does. I like the way one of my professors uh, used to say it in seminary. He said, death is an enemy, but it is a defeated enemy. The other reason that we don't embrace death before it's time is because God has given us this life for a purpose. This life has meaning, and there is much fruitful labor that we can do for the Lord. One commenter that I was looking at this week said something to the effect of this about Paul. He says, Paul fully embraced this life, but he always was looking forward to the next. He lived life to the full, but always recognizing that there was something in store for him on the other side that defined everything that we do here. This way of looking at it commends itself to all of us. To live is Christ. Life is good God has filled it with meaning and purpose, and we should embrace and enjoy it. And to die is gain. Being in the presence of the Lord is good, and we can look forward to it. Paul's words in this passage both uh, challenge and encourage us as Christ followers. They build us up in our faith. They lay before us an example to follow, a faithful way of being in this world. And what we see in Paul are things that we might pray that we would see in ourselves, that we might have a single-minded devotion to advance the gospel. We're not all called to be apostles like Paul. Most of us will not likely be imprisoned for our faith. It may be for some of us. But how might we in our own vocations and callings, in our own circumstances, work to advance the gospel and bring God glory? 
We also might pray that we would have a spirit of joy when we recognize God's hand at work in our lives, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. We might even pray that we would recognize God's hand at work in our difficult circumstances because it's not always obvious. And we might also pray that we would come to a point where we can say honestly for ourselves, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I want to close with one final thought, and we've said many times already in our series in Philippians that Paul is writing with an affection for these people, that you can feel it through his words. And I hope that as we are hearing Philippians read, as we hear this letter from Paul, and we sense the affection in it that he has for the Philippians, that we might feel for ourselves the affection that our Lord has for us, that he has loved us with an everlasting love. And that it's one of our Lord's great desires that when we die, when we depart these bodies and this life, that we would be fully in his presence. God wants that so much that he gave the life of his son so that it might be so. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord, you know us. You know us better than we know ourselves. You know the desires of our hearts. You know our sin and our weakness. Lord, we're thankful for the love and affection that you have shown for us in your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would continue to work in us by your Holy Spirit so that we might be able to one day honestly and truly say that for us to live is Christ and to die is gain, and that the gospel might redefine the way that we see and understand life and death in this world, all for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.